Well, this morning, let me uh, start off our discussion uh, with a question that I think I know the answer to, but I'm going to ask it anyway. As a parent, is there a worse feeling in the world than looking down and realizing that that child that you told to stay next to you is nowhere to be found? Not only is that sudden realization the most sickening feeling in the world, the longer you look, the worse the panic begins to get. It just grows and all of a sudden it's a full blown uh, panic and sound the alarms. And uh, when you finally find that child, it is a mixture. Your response is a mixture of I told you to stay next to me. And I'm going to spank you until you're crippled. On one side and the other side is break out the fatted calf. My child that was lost has now been found. Right. You know that feeling? Oh, we uh, we experienced that recently, not too long ago. We were at Ikea and our five year old Ella, uh, we, we turned around and, and listen, I mean, she was gone. We, we just kept kind of walking. We were walking. There she was. There she was. And we turned around to say something to her. She's gone. And we scoured kind of the, the little general area that we were at and she was nowhere to be found. And uh, finally, over the loudspeaker, we hear Brad and Tasha, please come to the children's area. How humiliating. What made it worse is about five minutes before that, we had seen a, a couple that uh, we used to go to my first church that I pastored. And so uh, what I heard was Brad and Tasha, parents of the year. You know, I mean, just humiliating. He was telling me, hey, was that you? No, another Brad and Tasha at Ikea. But uh, that, that feeling that sets in just that, that, oh, your stomach, like I can't find it. It just grows. And the worst incident, that was uh, that that took us a few minutes. And finally, we found Ellen. She was uh, in a different place than we told her to be. But uh, the worst incident that happened with one of our kids was about six years ago uh, with Ethan, our nine year old. Tasha went to, uh, with my sister-in-law uh, to one of those Disney on Ice things. And uh, at that point in time, Ethan was three years old. And they were at Hair Arena in Dayton. And at that point in time, as far as Ethan was concerned, the purpose of his existence at that point in time was Buzz Lightyear. Right there. There, there he is. And uh, so he, he was in full, uh, full costume, full, full uh, apparel. And they went to see Disney on Ice and Tasha's walking and they're talking. And and uh, she said she looks around. And he's gone. And she said, I scoured the immediate area and, and he's nowhere to be found. So I walk a little further and he's nowhere to be found. And she said, finally, that that feeling of panic begins to set in. She said, I kid you not. She said, I was sprinting around there, sprinting and crying and sobbing and yelling his name all at the same time. And finally, uh, on the other side of the arena, she found him. He had walked by some buzz memorabilia that his heart had went pitter patter for. And as soon as she turned around to talk, he was gone. He was shopping. He was totally shopping. Now, the really bad thing is she had given me my credit card. And so I was mad about that. And I was no, no. But she said it, it just full, just swept this panic. And it doesn't take long uh, if you've had that experience to leap from a nonchalant. Where did they wander off to to a full blown sound the alarm? My child has been kidnapped. I'm never going to see them again, does it? I mean, you can get there like that in a heartbeat. Well, if you've not been with us. We've been in a series in the book of Colossians called Root, and that title comes out of the verse that uh, just came up there on the screen. Uh, chapter 2, verse 7, as you've received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up, established in the faith. And so this is the sixth message in the series, and I've titled this message, How to Avoid Being Kidnapped. Now, that's an odd title, but I hope it'll make sense uh, when we get into the text here. So if you've not been with us, you can listen online. Kind of catch up about where we've been, but if it doesn't sound terribly exciting to spend your free time listening to me on a podcast, let me just give you the cliff notes. 
Uh, Here are the cliff notes so far. Chapter one, Jesus Christ is supreme. Chapter two, defending the supremacy of Jesus Christ. All right. So now I just caught you up to speed right there. Uh, In chapter one, he's building the case that there's no one on earth like Jesus. Chapter one, verses 15 through 19, he gives all these qualifications that are unique to Jesus Christ. And then starting in chapter two, he's defending the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He's saying, hey, listen, as a result of that, here are some truths. As a result of that, the church that brings glory to God is the one that makes much of Jesus, whether large or small. We looked at that last week. As a result of that, when Jesus Christ is supreme, then guess what? Uh, Your job is to be centered on Jesus Christ and come to the place where you say he's totally sufficient. He's everything that I need. My life is complete in him. And that's the thesis of what he's going to look at this morning in chapter two, uh, verses eight through 15. So Paul begins to turn his attention on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for everything and above everything. And so let's pick up uh, that passage with those kind of framework and that context in your mind this morning. Chapter two, uh, beginning in verse eight, he says, beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, you've been set apart You've been sanctified. You've been made righteous, not by anything externally, circumcision, baptism, any of those things, but by Jesus Christ alone, because he is supreme. And then in verse 13, he says, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made you alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed principalities and powers, there's just ranks of angels, even fallen angels, principalities and powers. He made a public. I love this. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. As you walk through this passage, what you're going to find here is we begin to break this passage down verse by verse is that the, what he's writing here is this. He's writing about the danger of being spiritually deceived by false teaching. He's writing about the danger of buying into any philosophy or worldview that's outside uh, Jesus Christ or says, hey, it's Jesus and this and Jesus and that. Uh, anything like that. And I don't know if you uh, realize this or not, but there are lots of people who say that, you know what, that, 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 that is too simplistic. Uh, it's just not deep enough. It's just not sufficient enough. And so you need to add these other things on top of that. And so uh, the, the false teachers in Paul's day that he's writing about here, the Gnostics, basically what they taught was this. Is that, yes, Jesus is good, but he's insufficient. He's incomplete. And once you add this and you add a little bit of this and you add this, then finally you've got this mixture and then you can be sufficient. Then you can be all God wants you to be. But the problem is this mixture is a mystery. And we, the Gnostics, the false teachers, uh, we know the formula. And so if you'll just uh, buy our DVDs and make three easy payments, right, then you, too, can experience the fullness of God in your life. And Paul just backs up and says, well, anytime anyone preaches anything other than Jesus Christ alone being sufficient for all matters of the heart, it's false teaching. And he says, if you're not careful, you're going to be deceived by that because it's so convincing sometimes. And we live in a day and age where there are con artists everywhere. 
people just on the TV and, and just uh, just peddling things and doing things like that. And it's not it's not a, sometimes it's so persuasive to people that they don't realize until after the cash is gone that they've been deceived at that point that they've just got to wipe their losses there. Heard about a farmer whose horses kept slobbering over everything. And he saw an advertisement of farm magazine offering a cure for this for a fee of twenty dollars. And so he scraped together the money and he wrote asking for the secret. And in return, he received a very thin envelope containing a single sheet of paper. With these words, teach your horses to spit. That's not a true story, by the way. Some of you are writing that down, like taking notes. Teach them to spit. Well, Paul's concern, obviously, is a little deeper than slobbering horses, right? He said, hey, listen, any time that someone says Jesus Christ plus something or Jesus Christ is insufficient to save or to make you complete, then we've got a big problem here. And if you're not careful, you're going to fall into deception and you're going to be deceived and head down the wrong path. And so uh, so how do we guard ourselves against this type of deception? Well, I'm glad you asked, because step one he lays out here in the passage is this, is that we must come to the place first off and foremost where we embrace the sufficiency of Scripture. Where we come to a place, we say, hey, listen, all things pertain to life and godliness. Here is the answer. I don't need anything else. I'm not taking away from not adding to it that I'm embracing the sufficiency of Scripture to address every matter of the heart of the inner man. My experience as a consultant, uh, lots of churches have lots of statements and to go in. They've got mission statements and purpose statements and vision statements and taglines and core values and all kinds of things. And uh, we have one statement here. We're making disciples who are gathering, growing and going. And our staff is structured around and everything we do falls under those headings. And so we don't have core values and all these other statements. But if we did have a set of core values or another set of statements, number one on the core value list would be this. We believe in the authority of the Bible and biblical teaching. That the goal of the church is to come in and experience the grace of God and the glory of Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures because they are trustworthy and authoritative in God's chosen vehicle to speak and guide his people. So we believe wholeheartedly in the sufficiency of scripture, which we believe is a fancy way of saying this, that we don't believe that wisdom from living comes from academic textbooks. We don't believe it comes from yoga. We don't believe it comes from humanistic psychology. We believe that wisdom for living and everything that we need is found right in the cover of this Bible. And so the Bible alone contains all the answers to life problems when it comes to matters of the heart. And if you don't believe that, then guess what? You're setting yourself up for deception. And you're coming to the word of God and saying, well, I don't think it speaks to that. I don't think it has wisdom for that. And so I'm going to pursue some wisdom in some other place, some uh, some some other vehicle of wisdom or source of wisdom. And as soon as I do that, guess what? I've pointed my heart and mind in a different direction other than the wisdom of Scripture. Look at verse eight again. Chapter two, verse eight. He says, beware. Lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Now, there, there is so much uh, I could preach an entire message on that one verse. I'm not going to try to get bogged down too much this morning, but that verse is rich. It is packed full of truth. And so what is he saying there in that passage? I love the New Living Translation of verse eight. Here's what it says. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high sounding nonsense. Do you love that? High sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. 
Now, the word capture in New Living Translation is translated in different Bibles, uh, different ways. In the New King James is translated uh, captive. In the New, New International Version, the English Standard, New American, uh, the word there, I'm sorry, in the, in the New King James, it's translated cheat. Don't let anyone cheat you. But most other little translations, it's translated as the word captive. And I think that's a better translation because in the original language, uh, what they're saying here is this. This had the idea capture. It had the idea of taking someone against their will uh, and carrying them off as the spoils of war. Now, what do we call it when someone comes along and takes someone apart from their own will and takes them away apart from their own will? What do we call that? They got what? Kidnapped. And so that's really the word here. So if it helps you in your Bible, you can write that out there. Beware lest anyone kidnaps you, carries you away, takes you captive, holds you captive by empty deceit and pagan uh, uh, philosophy. Now, how does that happen? Well, chapter 2, verse 4 says this. If we rewind uh, back, we looked at just some verses about a week ago. Chapter 2, verse 4 said this. He describes them as plausible arguments. He said there's enough truth in it in just a few verses and there's a there's enough familiar cliches where the truth and the deception are sitting side by side. And it's hard to distinguish between the two. And if I don't have discernment and I go outside the wisdom of the word of God, if I'm not careful, I'll grab onto something that's not truth and I'll start living out of it. And he says, if that happens, guess what? You've been cap- You've been kidnapped. You've been kidnapped. And so when we look at this. How does that happen? If we did a survey this morning and said, hey, what are your plans after church? Nobody would say, you know what, I'm planning on getting kidnapped. I've been bored lately. I'm just looking for a change of scenery and some hope just someone comes along and kidnaps me. You see, no one ever plans to get taken away against their own will and held captive. No, no one ever plans that. So, so how does that happen? How does a person get spiritually deceived uh, to the point where they've been held captive? They've been kidnapped. Let me tell you how that happens. Here's how it goes like this. Well, I, I, I know that's what the Bible says about that. But. And, and I know that's what Scripture teaches on this particular issue. But. Because every time that you, you put that in, every time you say this is what the Bible says, but what you're saying is this on this particular issue, the Bible is insufficient in its counsel. And as soon as I make that statement, then guess what? What I'm saying is the word of God is insufficient in its counsel. So I'm going to look somewhere else. And as soon as I do that, guess what? I'm in a place to get kidnapped. So he begins to walk through this passage. And talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. And I, that's a big way of a fancy definition. It's a doctrinal theme. But I found this statement that I think explains it uh, fairly sim- simply. Here's what it says. The sufficiency of Scripture can be simply defined as follows. L- listen to this. In the Bible alone, God has given humankind all things that are necessary for the proper understanding of who God is, who we are, how God has acted in the past, and what God expects from us. The idea behind the sufficiency of Scripture is that nothing else needs to be revealed to humanity about God or His plan for the human race. Now, let me ask you a question this morning. Do you believe that? Two of you. Yeah. Some of you are weighing your options right now, right? Did I come to the place when I began to review the, uh, view the Scriptures and say, hey, listen, everything that I need that tells me who God is, who I am, who I am in Jesus Christ, what he's done in the past, what his wisdom is for my life in the future. Everything is found within the pages of the scriptures. 
Some people come to the place and they say, you know what, I just don't know the Bible speaks to that or or that issue or, or you know, I don't I don't I need to find a I need to, I'm looking for my purpose in life or those kind of things. And they, they go outside the scripture. And they search all these other philosophies. And let me tell you what happens. They come up empty. They come up empty because the Bible says here in just another verse or two, this that true completeness is found in Jesus Christ alone. And so why is the Bible so important? Because, listen, the whole message of the Bible is about Jesus. He is the thread that runs from cover to cover. Listen, if you're not a Bible scholar this morning, I'm going to give you some some cliff notes here. And uh, you, you can say if someone comes, you say, oh, I don't understand the Bible. Someone in your circle of influence who's not a believer, not a follower of Jesus Christ. They say, I just don't. The Bible's so confusing. I don't understand the Bible. And you can say, hey, I, I can teach the Bible in like 30 seconds. All right. Here, here it is. In the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is coming. You get that in the Gospels and Acts, he came. This is what he taught. And then he ascended to heaven. The rest of the Bible, he's coming back. So here's how to live. So you're not embarrassed when he comes back. That's the whole scripture summed up in 30 seconds. All right. And so what he says is when I come to the word of God, the reason I believe it's sufficient is because the thread throughout all of scripture is Jesus Christ. And in him alone. I'm complete. I like nothing. Now, I love how practical this verse is in Scripture. So he, he starts off again, verse 8. He says, hey, beware, lest anyone cheat you or, or kidnap you or hold you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. The, the, the word there, the idea there is philosophy, empty deceit, just hollow teaching. It sounds good and someone's waxing eloquent. And they may have some uh, degrees tacked on the end of their name. But, but at the end of the day, it's, it's hollow teaching is what he's describing. So he says, beware. Then he lists off very practically. Here are three things to be on guard for. If you don't want to get kidnapped, here are three things you need to be aware of. The first thing he says this, beware of number one, unbiblical traditions. Where do I get that from? Beware lest anyone cheats you according to the tradition of men. Tradition of men, is, he says, it acts as one of the kidnappers. And so how does that happen? Is that people just come to a place where something is not fact, it's kind of a theory, and, but you just say it long enough and you say it hard enough and enough people repeat it, they pass it down, pass it down, pass it down. All of a sudden, it just kind of comes as accepted when in reality, it's not a fact, it's just a theory. You say, give me an example, evolution. Listen, it's not a fact, it's a theory. The Bible, it's actually called Darwin's what? Theory. But enough people have pushed it, enough people have repeated it, it's been passed down and passed down and passed down, that a lot of people just come to a place, well, it's just totally fact. I don't know how it fits in the Scripture, but it's totally fact. That's a tradition of men. It's found in the wisdom of one guy and a group of people there who just kind of promote this theory, but it's been passed down so long that it's become fact for some people. Tradition of men. And some people come to the place where traditions of men have become so strong but they look at anyone who holds up the Bible and says, hey, listen, this has everything that we need as being ill-educated. There's no, there's no basis for your scholarship. And so what does the tradition mean? It's anything that is found not rooted in the authority of Scripture, but in the wisdom of men. Listen, you can fill in the blanks. Uh, astrology, horoscopes. D- don't get me started on that, okay? Because I get really stirred up. I'm following Jesus, but I'm totally checking my horoscope every single day. Just in case. Astrology, horoscopes, atheistic evolution, humanistic psychology, Scientology all fall under the banner of unbiblical traditions. And so traditions of men have the root in the wisdom of men instead of the wisdom 
of the person of God and the word of God. So they say, listen, beware. If you're not careful, that'll get passed down so long. If you're not discerning, it'll sound so plausible that it'll come along and you'll embrace it. And it'll be a little bit of Jesus and some of this and some of that and finding completeness in your life. He says, beware, because you're going to get kidnapped. What else is it? What else do you say in that verse? Verse eight. He said, beware lest anyone cheats you, holds you captive, kidnap you according to the traditions of men, number one. Number two, according to the basic principles of the world. I, I describe this way, cultural values, just the things that the world values. Principles of the world. And let me quickly illustrate what some cultural values, because once you hear the examples, you'll get the idea, okay? Hey, here are some examples of cultural values. Anything found in Hollywood or Harvard or movies. Or magazines. You, you get the idea? Anything that's pushed out by higher academia that's not found in the Word of God. Anything that's pushed out by cultural things. Anything that anyone looks at and says this. That's what you should be shooting for. That when you've got that, then you've totally arrived. That's a cultural value. And, and, and let me line some cultural values up that, that are popular in our day. And contrast them with the wisdom of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. And see if you can begin to discern the difference. A cultural value says this, that you find your net worth in your self-worth. I got that backwards. You find your self-worth. You weren't even discerning. No one shouted out at me. No one booed me down. Pay attention. Cultural values, you find your self-worth in your net worth. Does our society not say that? Find your self-worth in your net worth. And so just get a bunch of money and you'll feel good about yourself. But the Bible says that wealth is simply a tool for worship. Don't answer that. That is that is don't. I hope that's not Chris Anderson. Someone calling him. A cultural value is sexual promiscuity. More partners equals more pleasure. A biblical value is purity. A cultural value is to be a workaholic. The Bible teaches uh, the person who ever builds in seasons of Sabbath is it to be rewarded. They're a fool is what the scripture says. The Bible teaches that a person uh, comes to a place in life where you've totally arrived or culture. You've, you've arrived. You finally got there when you have servants to wait on you. The Bible teaches you finally arrive when you're serving other people. Do you, do you see the dichotomy between the two? And so anything that the, the culture says, hey, do that, you've arrived, you've achieved, you've done that, shoot for those things. Anytime they stand in stark contrast to the word of God, listen, if you embrace those things and they become your motive and your passion for living, then guess what? You've been kidnapped. You've been kidnapped. You've been cheated by empty deceit. You've been ripped off of what it's all about. The world cries out for vengeance. The Bible says forgiveness. The world says be a consumer of people and goods. The Bible says be a steward. I get, I get, you get the idea here. Cultural values that can kidnap you if you're not careful. What's the third thing you list? We're going to list anyone cheats you, kidnaps you, traditions of men, principles of the world. And thirdly, anything that's not according to Christ. Non-Christ-centered solutions. Let me tell you why Paul was so stirred up. It's because the false teachers were coming along. Here's what they were saying. Jesus is good, but he's insufficient to save. And so when you had all these things, then you've got the formula for true enlightenment, true salvation, true peace with God. Now, do you know this? That if you search the scriptures and the number one warning over and over and over in the pages of scripture is false teaching. Over and over this warning about false teaching. Don't be deceived. Don't get kidnapped. Don't buy into that. Give yourselves a sound teaching. Over and over in the scripture, the number one warning is about false teaching. Here's the problem. 
The problem is this, is that we don't exactly know what false teaching is. I mean, we hear false teaching, we're like, is that what the Methodists do? And any time that someone disagrees with us on any secondary issue, I think Jesus is coming back here. Nope, he's coming back here, right? Well, they're false. We just brand them a heretic. False teacher. False teacher down with you. We, we, love, we would love to smite them, right? Using the Bible word. What is a false teacher? Let me give you a litmus test for false teaching. Two, two things here, right here. You can write these down. Number one, litmus test for false teaching. Number one is this. Anybody that says Jesus Christ is not God, false teacher. Anyone that says Jesus is not God, denies the deity of Christ, write it down, false teacher. It's what Jehovah's Witness believe. Jesus was not God. He was lesser than God. because That's why he served God. He was not God. So anybody that denies that Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, is a false teacher, this is the base level of false teaching. Second thing, anybody says that Jesus is insufficient to save, that yes, we like Jesus, but when you add these things in, then you finally got the real deal. That's what Mormonism teaches. They come to your door and they say, hey, we're followers of Jesus. So are we. What they told you is we've also got all these other things we're going to add to it so you can really get this thing settled, so you can really make this thing complete. So anybody that says Jesus was not God, false teacher. Anybody that says you've got to add anything to Jesus Christ for salvation, false teacher. So here's, here's the litmus test, false teaching. He's warning that. He said not anything according to Christ. Now, here, here's my experience, though. When I make those statements theologically about the deity of Christ and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone to save, as Bible believers, we, we say amen, we get excited. And so how can we get kidnapped by that? I mean, that, that, that is base theology. That's Christianity 101. Jesus is God. He alone saves. How, how does people get kidnapped by that? Listen, it's not in our theology uh, positions. It's in our practice. You, you see, what happens is this, is that we come to a place in life where we are struggling, we need answers, and we go to something else other than Jesus Christ and His wisdom for solutions. You say, well, how does, how does that happen? But let, me, let me tell you this the way that it happens in my experience is this. It happens in the area of counseling. I, I cannot tell you how many times I've sat across from people. Listen, I, I believe in counseling, so you're in counseling. I'm grateful for that. Uh, we, we counsel here. But I can't tell you how many times I've sat across from followers of Jesus Christ who said, I've got this problem going in my life. And so I'm going to go to counseling. I'm thinking, great. And all of a sudden they say, now, this person is not a Christian. And so you as a Christ follower having problems following Jesus Christ in some area of your life. And so you're going to a pagan, someone who has no knowledge of Jesus Christ to pour godly wisdom into your life. Yeah. Why are you here? Because it's not working. <laughs> really? You know what happens? Listen, when I counsel, here's what happens. I get in my office and I sit across and say, hey, tell me what's going on. And they share what's going on. And then here's what I I do. You know, here's here's my response always is this is what the Bible teaches. On that particular issue. Did you you understand what the Bible is teaching? Yes. Are you willing to embrace that truth by faith and and move forward and make those adjustments? Yes or no? Yes. Anything else? Any other questions, right? Now, that's not terribly sophisticated. And uh, listen, it could be worse. Uh, I've got a little video clip that I wanted to show. This was uh, recorded live here at one of our counseling sessions. And uh, just, well, you'll, you'll get the picture. It could be worse. I'll just put it to you that way. Uh, yes, come in. I'm just, just washing my hands. Uh, I'm Catherine Bigman. Janet Carlisle referred me. 
Oh, yes. Good, good. Very delighted about it. Yes. Yes, that's me. <laughs> Should I lay down? Oh, no, no, no. We don't, we don't do that anymore. Just, just have a seat. And, uh, and let, let me uh, tell you a, a bit about our, our billing. I, um, I charge $5 for the, for the first five minutes. And, and then absolutely nothing after that. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> Too good to be true, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, I can I can almost guarantee you that that our session won't last the full uh, the full five minutes. Now, um, <laughs> we don't do any insurance billing, so you would either have to pay in in cash or by check. <clears throat> wow. Okay. And uh, and I I don't make change. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> go. <laughs> go. Well, tell what? me, tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just I start thinking about being buried alive, and I begin to panic. Has, has has anyone ever ever tried to to bury you alive in a box? No, no. But truly, thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what what you're saying is you're you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes, yes, that's it. All right. Well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm. Uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in into your life. So I uh, write them down. Well, if, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most we find most people can uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yeah. Okay. You're there. Stop it. <laughs> Yes, S-T-O-P, new word. I love that clip. I feel like that sometimes in counseling. People come to me and continually violate the word of God over and over, have no idea why these painful consequences are going on. And I just want to look across them and go, stop it. Just stop, right? Now, why is that? It's because any time that we seek wisdom outside the sufficiency of the Word of God, then guess what? You're getting kidnapped. And when you get kidnapped, you're going to end up in places that you don't want to be. And so we come to this place and we just say, you know what? Well, I think the Bible's good. There's wisdom in there. But, I, but I'm just not totally sure that the Bible's sufficient for matters of the heart. Now, in my experience, uh, here's what often happens is this. One of, one of the areas that, that people totally get kidnapped in is this. Is that they come to the Word of God and they view it and they say, I'm not totally sufficient, and so I'm going to go the route of humanistic psychology. And so I hope that that's going to give answers to my soul, but it's going to speak to the inner man. Here's the problem with that humanistic psychology. Its root is this, is that man is good, but his environment's bad, so we just need to get him in a different place or understand his environment better. You know what the Bible teaches? The man's heart is wicked and needs redeemed by Jesus Christ, and that doesn't matter where I move him around in society. Do you see the difference in the root? Now listen. I think it's good for observing behavior. I think there's some good techniques for coping. But I want you to hear me this morning. 
that if you don't come to the place where the word of God is sufficient for all things dealing with the matters of the heart, then you are going to get kidnapped. That's what he's describing. Anything. What does he say in verse eight? He says anything according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles and not according to Christ. Let me just play this scenario out for you. Imagine you've got something going on. I'm not talking about physical issues, okay? But you've got something going on in the heart, which the Bible talks about, not the the actual heart muscle. The Bible talks about the heart being the center of your intellect, emotions, will, all those things. You've got something going on in the inner man. And you come to the place where you said, I don't think the Bible is sufficient to speak to that, even though the message of the Bible is Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to seek some other source of wisdom, uh, humanistic psychology or horoscopes or or anything like that. Then picture this scenario. Let's say that at the end of this service, that what was going on inside of you that you could not get closure on, could not get healing in, could not get to the place of hope in. Imagine this, that at the end of the service, you came down to the front and instead of me receiving you, Jesus Christ himself is there. Be pretty cool, right? And he says, What's going on? And you pour out this problem that's been going on. And can you imagine him saying, That's beyond me. I I can't handle that one. That is totally above my pay grade. You're gonna have to go somewhere else to get an answer to that. He said, Well, he, he would never say that. Listen, do you realize that every time that you go somewhere than here or Jesus Christ for the answers of what's going on in your heart, that's exactly what you're saying you think would happen? Embrace the sufficiency of Scripture. Write this down. This isn't original with me, but I came across this this week in my study. Remember, it's a filtering tool. If the solution, I don't care where it comes from, psychology, horoscopes, Listen, I don't care where it comes from. If the solution doesn't move you closer to God, then it isn't God's solution. You see, God allows things in my life to conform me and draw me closer to him. And at the end of that solution, if I don't look back and say, hey, I'm closer to God as a result of that. Guess what? It wasn't God's solution. So how do I avoid being kidnapped? I embrace the total sufficiency of the scripture and the word of God that I believe that everything in the pages of this, this Bible I'm holding up contains everything that deals with matters of the heart and nothing else is sufficient. So how do I avoid being kidnapped? Embrace the sufficiency of the word of God. And secondly, the Bible says I've got to embrace the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Look at verse two again. He says, for in him, verse nine, chapter two, he says, for in him, Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are, listen, you are complete. What does that mean? Lacking nothing. That he's totally sufficient. You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. You know what that verse is saying? That everything you need in life, everything is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And any time you go looking somewhere else other than Jesus Christ, there's going to be a sense inside of you that something's not right. That there's some incompleteness inside of you because verse 10 says that I'm complete where in him. So I've heard people say that. And here's, here's what they do, though. Oh, I believe that he's totally sufficient for salvation. But boy, when it comes to managing daily life, I ooh. I mean, I believe he saved me, forgave me. But as far as daily life, 
I just couldn't get by when life gets stressful without a stiff drink or a little pot or some pills. When life gets tough. Can I tell you if that's your strategy for managing life and hear me this morning? You aren't getting to the place of peace. You're just managing the symptoms a little better. You know what the Bible says in verse 10? That completeness is found where? In Him. And if I don't come to that place, then guess what? I'm going to spend all of my life managing symptoms, dulling pain, doing all those things, and never coming to the place of completeness in Jesus Christ until I come and see, you know what? He's not only sufficient to save me, He's sufficient for daily life as well. Grace the sufficiency of Christ. One commentator said this, he said, most Christians never get past the point of Christ died for me and come to experience the victory of realizing what it means that not only Christ died for me, but Christ lives in me. He said, there's some tough stuff. I mean, I think there's some demonic stuff going on. Oppression, not possession, but oppression going on in my life. Look at verse 10 again. He said, you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. I'm just going to walk through this quickly. We've just got a couple minutes. Let me, let me walk you through how sufficient Jesus Christ is for everything. How completeness is found only in Him. What does it say there? Let's walk through these verses. Verse 13, here's what it says. And being dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made you alive together with Him, having forgiven all trespasses. So what's it say Jesus Christ? I'm forgiven in Him. Total forgiveness, absolute forgiveness, is found in Him, not by my works, but by His work for me on the cross. He's sufficient for forgiveness. Verse 13 also says that I've been made alive in him. He's sufficient to bring dead people back to life. Do you realize that if something now, I've preached quite a few funerals, you know, what I've learned. Is that dead people don't don't respond to, to my stimuli. And I can I can encourage them and I can shout inspirational quotes at them. And I can look at and I can take that cask and I can move it all over the place, different environments, changing their surroundings. But guess what? The greatest need of a dead person is not encouragement. It's not inspiration. It's not a change of scenery. The only thing that helps a dead person is to be brought back to life, to be born again. So how sufficient is he? He forgives me. He's sufficient for that. He brings dead people to life spiritually. He's sufficient for that. What else does it say? How sufficient is he? Look at verse 14. He says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. What else does it say? He's, he's sufficient to set me free. But I'm no longer living by requirements. I'm living in the freedom of Jesus Christ. I'm no longer bound by all the rules and all the legalism and all the law and all those things. That I'm free in Jesus Christ. He alone is sufficient to set me free. You know, someone who's struggling with that, you can go to the bookstore. We have a series in there uh, called Simply Free, the book of Galatians. Uh, you can pick up, I think they're $15 for a set. They're running a special. You can get two for 35 And so if you want to, so if anybody orders two in the bookstore, I want to know, okay? Listen, that, that he is totally sufficient to set me free from all of those things. What am I free from? One, I'm free from rules. All the requirements, it says in verse 14. What else am I free from? Look at verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, ranks of angels, demonic. He, I love this. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I'm free from bondage. Free from bondage. 
You see, I'm free from all the rules to be made right, and I'm free from the bondage that nothing, no weapon formed against me can prosper is what the Bible says. Why? Not because of who I am, but because of Christ, what he did for me. Made a spectacle of them. That's what it says. And I said this a couple weeks ago, we need to be reminded of it. That if Satan has claimed any ground in your life, listen, hear me, according to verse 15, all these passages in the Bible, if Satan has claimed any ground in your life, here's what you need to understand. He's done so with your permission. You see, as the enemy, when Jesus Christ is the resident of my heart, the enemy can't walk onto my property unless the landlord gives him permission. Do you understand that? And so I'm free from bondage. But we're done. But I want to give you some things to meditate on in this time of response. Two things. Number one, what area of your life are you on the verge of getting kidnapped in? Is it through traditions of men? Is it cultural values, things the world values? Is it philosophies and solutions that are not of Christ? Those three things in verse 8. What are you on the verge of getting kidnapped from? And number two, how would your life be different if you really embraced the sufficiency of the Word of God and the Son of God for your sole source of completeness in life? What would be different in your life if you embrace the sufficiency of Scripture and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ? In Him, we are complete. Those are the two questions. Now, I can't answer those for you, but here's what I do know. That if you allow him to this morning, the Spirit of God will speak to your heart and he'll give you the answer and the direction you need to go. And so I'm going to invite you to bow your heads.